0: This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your guest host in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. Our guest for this episode is Captain Brian McNulty of the Milwaukee Fire Department's Rescue Company 2. Brian joined the ranks of the Milwaukee Fire Department in 1999. In addition to serving as the company commander of Rescue 2, Brian is a co-director for the department's technical rescue team and is an adjunct instructor at the Training Academy. He's also the lead tactical training instructor for our generous sponsor, Conway Shields Training Division. Ryan, I really appreciate your willingness to contribute to LUF's conversation around human performance and leadership in high-risk settings. You're certainly one of the most experienced fire officers in the LUF network, and I'm confident that our listeners will find your insight valuable.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate you having me on. I mean, it's an honor and privilege um, to be asked to be a guest on the podcast, so thank you very much.
0: Yeah, you got it. The, the honor is, uh, the honor is ours. So Saturday, January 22nd, 2022, just a few, two weeks ago, it was an important date for both you and members of your unit. It marked the 10th anniversary of rescue Company's to existence in the Milwaukee fire department. And you were the company's first captain and have been the only company commander of the company to date. So I'd like to start the conversation today by asking you to walk us through the company's origins. First, why was the company created and who were some of the key players in getting the company established and opened?
1: Yeah, so, you know, one, 2012 was a huge date. Um, you know, 10 years was just uh, an extremely prideful moment for the members of the company. And, you know, looking back over these 10 years, just, you know, we're extremely happy with product we put out. And, you know, so prior to 2012, the, the department didn't have any heavy, heavy rescues. Now, if we do go back to, You know, the 20s through the 50s, um, we did have squad companies and they were stood up when a need was seen by the department to have some specialty stuff. You know, they had like, you know, ropes and oxyacetylene torches and a couple of hydraulic jacks on there staffed by four or five members. And, you know, they operated at, you know, major emergencies. And then those companies went away in about the 60s. And my history might be a little off on that. And I'm not really sure why they went away. And they kind of went from, the squads went from being a heavy rescue asset, like a technical rescue asset, to more of just a two-person squad on an ambulance that responded to uh, uh, injured firemen. So the Milwaukee Fire Department's unique in the fact that we have a lot of standalone things. So we have a standalone technical rescue team. Um, We call it the heavy urban rescue team. We have a standalone dive component, and then we have a standalone hazmat component. And... The technical rescue team as it exists today really traces its roots back to the dive team of the 80s um, when a captain there, Captain Knutson, decided he thought that the the dive team would benefit from having a rope component to the dive team. And so they started doing ropes and, you know, some members on the team were happy with that, some weren't. And there was this split in the early 90s and the the rope team got its official start and was quartered at uh, Truck Company 2. And at about the same time, uh, there was a huge uh, public works project happening in the city of the deep tunnel project for Milwaukee. And they started a tunnel team um, right about that time as well. And they were stationed at a different quarters as well. So in 1995, the department, the chief of the department at that time kind of decided, okay, like we have too many technical assets kind of spread out. Um, We're going to bring the rope team and the tunnel team under one roof. So in 1995, the, what we know now is the heavy urban rescue team started and was stationed at engine quarters of uh, engine 12 and truck 11. And, you know, so that consists, you know, that goes on. Um, some of the names that ran that team, you know, you know will sound familiar to the LUF. Um, it was, you know, a guy named Captain Linden. And then at that time, a Lieutenant Paul Conway was on truck 11. And those guys always valued what a heavy rescue uh, could bring to a, to a city fire department. Uh, and the need for heavy rescue, but they were in a position, you know, they're they're at the time a captain and a lieutenant and they weren't really in a position, you know, watch the fire department has historically been, a you know, an engine and a truck department, very aggressive in nature. Um, and they didn't see the t- the need for the rescues. And then you fast forward to 2010 and a couple of things align. We get the, a new chief that was from outside our department. He had heavy rescues from where he was from. He was actually a cap- captain on a heavy rescue. Paul Conway promotes to Assistant Chief of Operations, and Terry Lintnan, who was the uh, uh, Captain of Ladder Eleven, is now um, the Battalion Chief of Special Operations. So they pitched this to the the Chief of the Department at the time, and in 2011 ish, it gains traction, and in the fall of two thousand eleven, we get the okay, and then the rescues, both one and two, come online the exact same day, or January twenty second of two thousand and
0: twelve. So quickly.
1: Yeah. Once we got the new chief and, and uh, those two individuals, uh, Paul and Terry, promoted to those positions, you know the stars aligned um, pretty rapidly. 2010, 2011. Um, a lot of people in the department were working, you know, in a coordinated effort to get the rescue stood up and running.
0: And then the specialties that you referenced, the specialty teams prior to this. Uh, I'm assuming all of those members worked in different flyhouses and units, and if there was an event that required an activation, they would marshal or consolidate in, in one area?
1: Yeah, so the dive team, at the, we still have a standalone dive team and a standalone hazmat team, so those units still work separately from us. Um, engine and 12 and ladder 11, it encompassed about 33 members of about a 75-member technical rescue team. Um, okay. So if there was a large-scale event, then those members would be activated throughout the city.
0: And then present day, which which capabilities aren't organic to you, but then exist without outside the scope of your your company and, and rescue one?
1: Yeah. So Dive has their own component and then Hazmat has their own component. And then we kind of fill in all the gaps. We do rope, structural collapse, confined space, trench, um surface water rescue, man and machine, uh, advanced extrication you know, anything that falls outside the dive or the hazmat, uh, uh, scope. Um, even though we work pretty closely with those teams.
0: Okay. Just curious, like how much resistance or skepticism was there to having an independently staffed rescue company in a department that is rich in tradition in terms of aggressive interior structural firefighting? Yeah, it was, uh, it
1: wasn't easy flooding to start. Um, there was quite a bit of resistance you know there was the resistance from some of the uh you know command staff to start and there was definitely some resistance from the field and and i understand it i mean you know i'm super proud of the milwaukee fire department we do have a great culture and a great history and it's embedded in you know aggressive engine companies and aggressive truck companies and you know now we're going to introduce this new asset and you know so we come online in 2012 and you know the guys are having a lot of angst and uh, you know, I tell them at the time I said, you know, there's going to be three groups of people, you know, there's going to be group one. It's going to be the people that, you know, rescues, not rescues. We don't care. Like we're just going to come to work every day. It doesn't matter. You know, have your rescues have at it, you know, and then there's going to be this middle group who was like, you know, no matter what you do, we're never going to buy into the concept. Like we're not going to be rescue fans, no matter how hard you work, it's not going to matter to us. Um, And then there was this third group, And it was kind of the group I told the guys, Hey, let's worry about this group. And it's going to be this group that maybe aren't like big fans of us. And maybe will really never like us, but they're going to learn to respect us. And we're going to earn that respect through, you know, the work we put in the experience and you know, the amount of professionalism and performance that we, they're going to see on a daily basis in the street. So 2012, I, you know, I was nervous going into this venture. I was, you know, I was a relatively new captain. I had about two and a half, three years as a captain at the time. You know, I'm handed this unbelievable gift of, you know, being one of the first captains on the rescue company. And I have a a lot of experienced members, but I also have a lot of younger members on the job at the time. So, you know, my stress level is pretty high. And at the time I was uh, doing some teaching and a, a friend of mine that I got to know from New York, he sent me an email, you know, he knew I was going through some stuff and he sent me an email and I still have it hanging in my locker. And it says, you know, with any venture, you know there's going to be stress and the actions of your your company's display on the fire ground and around the job um, will build a reputation you wish for and you may not have come here to win friends but you'll win some converts along the way with your when your actions are top notch and you know that still hangs in my locker and i just sent them a picture of it in january when we reached our 10 year mark because um, it's really kind of been a guiding principle for me right it's like you know i think about dr fader that i met through all you often this control the controllables and you know we couldn't control the amount of experience we had or what other people thought of us but we could control you know the mission that we were set forth to you know that we were tasked with and how we were going to accomplish that mission and the effort we put into it
0: yeah that's some pretty some pretty solid wisdom and uh council pretty neat that you still have it hanging in your locker uh kind of reflect upon as you just reached the 10th anniversary of of your endeavor do you have any idea, like, how and why you were selected to be the company's first uh, captain?
1: Yeah, I know this may sound cliche, but I think I was the right, you know I was in the right place at the right time. I got made captain in 2009. Um, at that time, uh, Terry Linton, long-term uh, guy who held the co-director of the technical rescue team, decides to move on to take a new position within the department. He offered me, offers me the spot to be the captain of Engine 12, which puts me as the co-director of the team. And then, like I said, you know, the Terry moves up to that special operations role. Paul moves into, uh, assistant chief of operations, you know, throughout 2010 and 11, I did a lot of legwork, you know, logistics to, you know, for the, the rig to actually put put in place the equipment. And, uh, in the fall of 2011, I get a phone call and, you know, it was like almost unbelievable. They're like, all right, which one do you want rescue one or two? And, uh. <laughs> I took yeah, rescue too. I hey, mean, I like,
0: yeah, to this day, I still pinch myself about it. It's, you know, it's like
1: unbelievable. So,
0: yeah. What a cool opportunity to be a plank owner of something uh, as significant as that. So kind of time present, what would you say is like the, the principal or primary mission of, of the company? Like where's where's your focus? Has it evolved over time? Or has it been somewhat consistent with the philosophy in, in view or objectives he had going into this endeavor 10 years ago
1: i mean our primary responsibility i mean a rescue goes to every structure fire pin in man and machine you know anything big happened in the city a rescue is assigned to and you know if we look at look at it through fires like our primary responsibility there is obviously you know if a fireman gets in trouble the rescues are going to play a key, key component and we spend you know, a lot of time training in different ways to make sure we're ready for that mission. But we're really kind of a, almost a utility player in the fact that, you know, we're usually coming into the event. We're usually not first on scene and we're really there as a support role to make sure that, you know, things are going well. If they're not going well, how can we insert ourselves to maybe correct what's going on? You know, the engine and the truck companies just do a phenomenal job. I mean, I mean, like super proud of what those guys do and, yeah, and where I work, I'm just surrounded by some great truck companies and great engine companies. So you know, 90% of the time, you know, they're headed in the right direction and then making the fire. Um, you know, you know, we're we're doing the, we're doing what we're supposed to do. And you know, it's that maybe that 10% or probably even less that where the rescues I think really earn their stripes and come in and you know, maybe fill in the gaps or help when needed and you know just assist other companies and you know being successful.
0: Excellent. What what's the op tempo? Like in terms of annual activity from from year to year, I mean, obviously you work for a job that goes to what what seems to be a, a good amount of work.
1: Yeah, we do all right. I mean, so the rescue rescue two runs about thirty three thirty five hundred runs a year. Now we still do. We are second out the door to EMS, so there is an the EMS component of that. But you know, we do get a fair amount of fire duty. We get for a city our size, we do get a lot of auto extrication work. But fire duty, like kind of bugs me when guys, you know, say, talk about how busy they are. Cause it's so, com- you know, comparative to other departments, but you know, like this year in January, you know, by mid January, you know, the city had 50 structure fires and rescue two probably operated at two thirds of those. So we're getting a decent amount of work. You know, our experience grows every year. Um, you know, it's shown in our members. Um, our members get to, you know, stay with the company, you know, dependent, really the reason they leave is they leave for retirement, which we've only had three guys leave for retirement. Um, We lose a lot of guys through promotion, unfortunately, you know, rough on us, but good for the department. And, Mm -hmm. you know, every once in a while, we get like a very limited amount of people who just, you know, want to go and head in a different direction. But, you know, the, the tempo around the house between runs and training is, you know, it's, it's high. So.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd say that's a pretty high off tempo. Brian, you know, now that you've been the company commander for, for 10 years, And you basically built your own, your own company and your own command climate per se. What individual and unit values do you place a premium on as a company commander and the captain of the the company?
1: Yeah. So 2012, you know, prior to that, the start date of the rescues, you know, it was all like administrative work, right? I mean, the fellows were doing a great job getting the equipment ready and stuff but it was really the, you know, admin getting the, the rigs up and running. And then like, bang, January 22nd, 2012, like we hit the ground running. And it is such a testament to the members for the amount of work that they put in and continue to put in that it really built, built the rescues. Yeah, I think about it often and I think about, you know, something you said pretty early on in one of your talks, you know, you talked about, you know, the, the reasons for mission success when you were deployed. And, you know, you had like technology listed and stuff. And they said, you know, post deployment, what it was, was like this collective will and mindset and personal relationships. And like, I couldn't agree with that more. Like, you know, the rescue is stocked with, you know, I don't know, $200,000 worth of equipment or something. And it's, you know, that's great. But what makes the rescue company so successful is like the unbelievable commitment of our members to like show initiative you know, exercise critical thinking, be a teammate, you know, trust one another, you know, never settle for like, you know, never settle for, you know, this is good enough. Like they just constantly push themselves. I mean, I mean, I'm proud, you know, like, and with all humility, in fact, like these are guys who operate at a very high level and like they operate with humility and they operate with like this never ending sense of, Like, what can we do better? How can we improve ourselves? How can I improve the guys, you know, sitting next to me? So I look for people when we do recruitment, you know, AJ Hornick and I, um, so AJ is the captain of rescue one. And, you know, when AJ and I do recruitment, you know, those are the kind of people we're looking for. You know, they might not come to us with all the experience uh, in the world, but, you know, experience comes with time and, you know, we can train you know, spent a lot of time training with them. But, you know, if they have like this core values of initiative and humility and uh, have exhibited, in, you know, within the companies that they're in, that they're team players, you know, those are the kind of people that we want.
0: So the, the personal attributes carry a lot of weight with you.
1: A hundred percent. AJ and I were assigned together. AJ was the captain, engine 24. Then at the time, he's now the captain, rescue one, but engine 24 was assigned with rescue two. So he's going to be the first captain that engine 24. We're going to work together. And I remember we we're going out for beers and we're like, you know, how are we going to like, what are we going to do? Like rarely in the fire department, do you get a total reset? Like we got 30 guys like on that day, who we're all new to the house. And, you know, we knew that it was like this once in a lifetime opportunity. And we said, you know, what are we going to focus on? And, you know, AJ put it well, he said, you know, we're going to focus on guys who can show initiative, you know, guys, we can trust guys that are going to be good teammates, all those things I listed, like right off the bat, like, we valued, you know, like, the human component of things, you know, probably more than we did the tactical side of it.
0: How do you tease that out?
1: Through training or how, like, through recruitment? Like, what do we look for in recruitment? You,
0: you personally, like, uh, I guess, start with, like, what's what's your cycle in terms of recruitment or assessment and selection? You know, what what does that process look like? Like, guys guys call you up or there's a there's a yeah, schedule so, when, when guys can express interest and in, in, you know, how do you assess?
1: Yeah. So it's a little bit of everything. So like for me personally, I don't like AJ and I don't leave the house much. Right. Like, you know, unless I work in overtime or something, I don't leave the house. So like sure. a lot of the members, I only see it on fire ground operations. So if, you know, I, I keep an eye out, I watch for people, you know, operating at fires, but a lot of it is I lean on on the membership. Like, We're a group of individuals who, so we have a promoted position for driver that we call heavy equipment operator. Like we put a lot of trust in our heavy equipment operators and we really, really value the senior man. So we really, this is one of those times that we really lean on those members because they probably have more interaction um, with the younger people on the job. People that might be interested in coming on the technical rescue team. Um, They're probably out working with them a little more. They probably get outside of the house a little more. I mean, they have, we've that shared philosophy on what we're looking for, but they're the ones kind of feeding back to me. Um, so there's, you know, I'm out at fires interacting with these people. I'm relying on our people in house to give me feedback. And then, um, you know, we reach out to those, those interested individuals or those people that we kind of highlight that we'd like to talk to. We reach out to their officers, get some feedback and the firefighters they work with. Um, and then there is a formal application process as well. So, kind of a grouping of things to get those people to us sure
0: i mean i would imagine that there's a high amount of interest on the part of the members looking to come to your place right yeah we always do really well i mean
1: guys like to go to fires and you know we have a great carrot right i mean you look and there's a rescue at every fire so you know that's a great recruitment tool but you know i want to i want guys when we recruit them and we spend time with them like really I think it's huge to understand like the history of the team and how we got there. It's like, you know, this just, isn't a rig that goes to fires. Like there's more to it here than that. And, you know, we weren't always what you guys see. Like some of these guys only, you know, they've only been on the job less than 10 years. So they don't remember a department without rescues. So it's right. important for us to like, for them to kind of like know that history. And like, cause I think when you understand the history, you know, it's like uh, you're, you're just more vested. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of carry a piece of it that you want it to, you want it to survive or you want it to be better than when you showed up. So I think that's important.
0: And then when you bring guys over, there's an assessment phase or there's a screening process or it's an opportunity for you to send guys back that that aren't really working out. Or once a guy comes over, he largely stays.
1: Yeah. So we've had, I mean, we've really had good luck, but there is that does exist. So what we do is, like just this last summer we identified 16 guys that we're going to bring on. The department uh, works with us. They're good about it. They take those guys offline for about the equivalent of three weeks. And then our in-house guys um, take them out and do, they're assigned to a 40 hour work week and our guys come out, our guys take them out to different locations and get, get them up to speed on kind of our core proficiencies. Um, right. So that's part of the assessment. They're not really part of the team yet. So there is a chance, you know, we could still weed somebody out at that point. And then once they're done, um, both of the rescues are quartered with a engine company. And one of those spots on that engine company, sometimes two, depending on our numbers, um, is allocated as a, uh, a training spot. And that's really when we get to learn about somebody, right? Because we're in the house 24 hours with sure. them. They're getting more training. We get to see how they are at fire's. Um, We get to see their work ethic around the house. And so there's no guarantee after that first year that they're going to, like, you know, make the cut and get their, you know, kind of signed off as, like, a rescue qualified personnel. So, but, I mean, we've had really good luck with uh, our recruitment process, I think, works really well. So, I mean, I can think of one time where we, like, parted ways with somebody so far.
0: In large part, probably because you've done
1: an extensive amount of homework on the front end. Absolutely. Right. You know, between myself and AJ and then, you know, the senior guys and everybody in the company going out and work with these people. Like, so when we get a list of applicants, I'll I'll take the list and I'll take it out to uh, the kitchen. Ta- I'll throw it on the kitchen table and like, I'll let the guys have at it. Like, you know, I
0: want feedback. I don't know. That process works for us. I think some things require consensus. I mean, you know, the fact is these guys be going to the to fires and emergencies with this individual too, or these individuals, too so 100 so, I mean, percent it's, it's critical to have their uh their buy-in in the process
1: yeah 100 percent i mean for as much time as you know i like that to think i spend with these guys and as much influence as i have on them you know you know the reality is is that the guys on the floor spend so much more time with them interacting with them and you know these young guys are learning so much from you know not only the senior guys but every other guy that's you know, assigned to that rescue company or senior guy in that engine company. So it's important that that relationship is strong.
0: So I got to ask someone of a, a loaded question. Do You have full autonomy and agency over who you bring over, or is, are there instances where folks that wear more on their collar than than you say, hey, Ryan, you're gonna you're gonna bring this guy over? No, we do. Um,
1: you know, we we've you know, knock on wood, the Chiefs have been. Absolutely fantastic. The department's been fantastic. They've one time we had a an officer, uh, we had an officer opening that we had to run a pretty formalized process and have a board. Um, But besides that, the department's been you know very hands off and you know like 100% supportive um, with how we've like recruited and trained our members. So that relationship has really been good.
0: Yeah, I I think having full autonomy over selection as a company commander, particularly in an elite unit is, uh, is, is huge and, and quite a blessing. Yeah. Uh, many, many of your peers probably in cities across the United States don't, don't join that level of autonomy. And that's inclusive of of your officers too, your lieutenants, to the extent that you get to pick your lieutenants. Yeah. So I'll have a
1: couple of vacancies coming up and, uh, yeah, I, I put forth a name and like I said, that one time we had to run through a process and, even at the end of that process, the candidate that we wanted, you know, he rose to the top, you know, just naturally anyway. Um, Yeah. But, um, you know, we submit a name and that happens. And, you know, I mean, that's a testament to the folks that we're putting forth. I mean, we have have great names to put forth. I mean, that's, I told AJ when he came on, uh, you know, I had kind of been with the team for about three years prior to like the rescues officially starting. I told AJ, I said, Hey, out of all the headaches you deal with, the hardest one is going to be the ones that deal with people, you know, whether that be, you know, discipline, obviously, but also like trying to weed down, you got one spot available and you're going to give it to one guy, but there's probably four or five guys that are eligible for that position. You know? So he kind of laughed at me at the time, but now looks back at it and goes, yeah, Brian, you're right. I should have listened to you. Like one of the only times he told me you should listen to me.
0: (laughs) So, Do you anticipate that you'll uh, you, you'll spend the remaining years of your career in rescue toe?
1: Man, that's even a more loaded question than the first one, Jason. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll tell you this story. So I took a Chiefs exam. One I never thought I would get 10 years. I don't know. Like when I got there, I'm like, man, it's just such a cool, like cool thing feather in my calf. Such an honor. Like if they give me three years, I'll be like ecstatic. And then all of a sudden 10 years it's so I took a Chiefs exam like two years ago yeah, I think I do all right. Um, It's Easter Sunday. I'm like, you know, I'm like still on the fence and the results are going to come out the next day. And, you know, Jill always tells me, my wife, like, you know, do a plus and minuses, do a plus and minuses. And I'm like, I'm not going to do a plus and minuses. Like, I'm not going to do that. My family leaves, we sit down, we do a plus and minuses. And I decide that like, no, I'm going to stay at the rescue. And the next morning I get up early. I type an email to the chief. He was super good about it. Said, you know, Brian, thanks for being in the process. And about, you know, a proverbial two in the morning that night, we're at a car fire in a garage. It's collapsed the garage, like not a very entertaining run and it's pouring rain. And my driver looks over at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you've had like this stupid smile on your face all day. And I'm like, man, I just tend is like the greatest day on the job. I like so no way. I made the right decision, but so at that time it was, but yeah, you know, I'd never say never so we'll yeah see.
0: yeah, I mean, it's certainly a tough place to uh, to leave you know the flyers you go to and then the autonomy that that you have over your unit, the fact that you created the culture since it's uh, of the company since its inception, so you know, not not too many folks have been in a position similar to you and then where they got to build a unit ground ground up. What a great, what a great experience and opportunity. Uh, (laughs) Unbelievable
1: forever. Be thankful. So
0: Brian, is it safe to say that most of the fires you operate in are, are wood frame P roof, private dwellings?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, the city is just packed, um, with like between one and a half to two and a half story wood frame, you know, 12, 12 pitch balloon frame, constructed buildings, you know, densely packed gangways of about eight feet apart. And, you know, primarily those neighborhoods, the most densely packed neighborhoods are also some of our most impoverished. So they see our most fire duty, unfortunately. So that, you know, that would probably be considered if we have a bread and butter fire, that two and a half story wood frame is our bread and butter fire.
0: So most of the real world repetitions that you and your guys are getting are in a, a very similar type of occupancy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I would say Ninety percent of our fire fires wow. are in, are in private dwellings. I mean, these fires can you know reach up and bite us. Um, but I think the department does a phenomenal job operating at them. But I I think sometimes we struggle at fires, like everybody struggles at fires that aren't in those because we become so used to operating in those. So you know when we get a uh, you know we had a like a a wood shop like a you know, commercial wood shop on fire the other day. And, you know, those fires, they give us pause, right? So just because we don't have the experience in those types of buildings.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of the, the peak roof, private dwellings, where you guys are doing a bulk of your your work and generating a considerable number of uh, reps pretty consistently. What's the primary role of, of your, of your unit of the rescue company at those fires in particular?
1: Yeah. So have a good way to explain that is to kind of like tell you what the engines and the trucks are doing. Okay. So we, we send a pretty heavy response. So we send four engines, two trucks and a rescue company, along with, you know, a couple chiefs. And if we just look at those two and a half story wood frames, you know, we're going to at least have probably two lines stretched, you know, definitely one to the fire floor, one above trucks are going to probably, you know, they're going to do force entry, initiate searches, um, probably on the fire floor, help locate the fire. And then we're real heavy on ventilation, especially topside ventilation, um, if that mm-hmm. fire's up on, uh, you know, up in the attic space or extending up in the attic space. So the rescues really play this uh, kind of fill-in. Like, you know, we arrive on scene, you know, through the radio traffic, through the traffic we have in the rig prior to we get there. We kind of set our game plan. We almost always separate into a group of two and three. We run a five-person company. Myself and the younger uh, firefighter on the rig I and mean that luckily for me that guy could have you know 12 15 years are gonna go to the fire floor assist with the search assist with you know making sure that uh you know operations are going well with the line you know start opening them up and then those other three members are almost always gonna throw a secondary means of egress and access that second floor to do searches above and then you know depending on, on how the fire is going you know we're gonna adjust accordingly uh, but you know, sometimes we'll like if they're gonna do, you know, vertical vents is called for and a company's gonna send guys to the roof and they're a little shorthanded, we might send one of our members over there. So, you know, we're pretty flexible in how we operate.
0: But generally yourself and another member to the to the five floor and then usually three members to the floor above while uh in- ensuring there's a second means of, of egress. Yep. Yeah, that's that's pretty. I mean, that's pretty straightforward for a two and a half story wood frame. What then are some of the challenges or curveballs that emerge from time to time that would demand that your your unit functions optimally under pressure? You, earlier, you uh, I think you said something about earning your stripes. at a you know small percentage of fires, but where we're, we're guys are encountering some uh, some some challenges and, and require you guys to yeah perform. So-
1: you know, it's weird. so we operate, you know, the majority of our fires, which I feel like we go to a fair amount of fires, and then 90% of those fires are probably in, you know, these wood frame dwellings, but man, they can present challenges, right? So, you know, you can have illegal layouts um, or modifications. You can have hoarder conditions. Uh, the bloom frame construction, the amount of void spaces, the fire spread in these buildings can just be phenomenal and sometimes almost... I don't know if unexpected is the right word, but, you know, can kind of catch us off and the, the fire spread can definitely outpace our ability to um, get lines in operation um, without slowing down the search. So where our challenges come in and where I think the company does a really great job is our people are really good at like sinking on their feet independently of having an officer attached to their, whatever their primary task was. So you know, you might have fire break out in a knee wall and put a company in a bad position or, you know, a different company is searching above and fire breaks out of the, you know, out of the old laughing plaster walls, puts company in a bad position. The, the rescue guys, I think they're really great at, you know, keying into the radio and adjusting and, and focusing their efforts um, where the need is and helping those companies out, like kind of rectify whatever those situations are. You know, whether that be, you know, getting a line in operation, making contact with the company to back them up to the stairwell, you know, redirecting a hose line and you know, that doesn't happen too often, but you know, when those guys, you definitely see their experience and their commitment come out in situations like that.
0: Sure. I think that's well said The the value in having a, a firefighter who's seasoned, experienced, composed and has the, the ability or capacity to operate independent of an officer but to think on that higher level and to be able to impact the trajectory of things, you know, you go off the rig y- yourself and it's, uh, you have four other members, right? Correct. Right. Yeah, certainly a, a force multiplier. Brian, you, you've transmitted two Maydays in your career. I'd like to take a few minutes and, and unpack those two particular fires from not, not so much a tactical perspective, but from a leadership and human performance perspective. The first occurred on December 16, 2010, when you were operating in a fire in a two-story single-family dwelling uh, on West Mineral. Can you tell us about this occupancy and the fire conditions at this fire?: Yeah,
1: so it was a, uh, I was working, I was like covering basically on a, a truck company 11 this day. And fire came in about dinner. It's a two-story wood frame balloon-constructed building step back from the road, like, I'd almost call it like a shoebox, like, you know, uh, narrow but deep, you know, heavy smoke, no fire showing when we get there, two engine companies that beat us to the scene, um, but heavy smoke showing from, you know, all floors, any opening had heavy smoke, uh, pushing engine companies quickly, uh, quickly realized the fire was in the basement. Um, They stretched through a side door, they had to crawl across the kitchen um, and then that put them down a pretty narrow basement stairwell. And uh, we arrived on scene. Um, still no fire showing. I detail the guys to uh, start opening up the basement windows to give those guys some relief. Get We put box fans in the windows um, to kind of exhaust the heat. So they start on that and I start a search through the uh, front door. I get in through the front door. You know, conditions aren't the best. Like it's pretty hot a lot of furniture. The search is going pretty slow. And I come across a couple vents that are like have fired. There's the fire's already shooting through the vents, So I'm like, all right, they're pretty well involved fire. And at the same time the chief is outside and he's trying to call engine 12 and engine three. We're in the basement. He's trying to call those guys and tell them to back out like fire's breaking out. It's not going well. We don't have a third line in operation. I'm calling for a third line. It's not coming. Um, he radios me, says, "Hey Brian, can you go, you know, get engine twelve, engine three out of the basement?" I, right, ten four. Well, I crawl into the kitchen, and the kitchen is, you know, unfortunately a jumble of hose, And there's one guy doing just a phenomenal job. He's the the heel man on engine three, a guy named uh, Josh Henson And I get to him, and I said, "Hey, where are they?" And he's like, "They're just, they're right down here, right in the basement." He shows me right to it. And I told him, I said, "Josh, you just got to stay here because you're going to be like our last line of defense. You're going to be the way out for these guys." So I get to the bottom and uh, there's six guys now. And what had happened was this, I talked about illegal modifications and how tough it can make it. So they had Mm -hmm. like made this long hallway where normally you would think you would get to the bottom. It would be the open basement. They had made this Mm -hmm. long hallway with a door at the end, but it was kind of also, there was an opening behind you as well. And it disorientated the crews a little bit and it slowed fire attack. So by the time I get down there, fire is going unchecked on the one side of this wall. It's burning through the door. It's burning over our head. Like the radio transmissions are through the roof. Bells are going off. Like, I mean, you look at it from the human performance point of view. Like now I realize like the amount of stimuli that are going off in this hallway is like, it's unbelievable. So we get and ourselves
0: organized. Yeah, we have two lines. Okay.
1: Yeah, we have two lines, which like. That's rare for us to do that. Um, So I I never found out why, you know, where the communication was between the officers that both of those lines end up in the basement, but like, they felt like every time they hit it in front of them, it was wrapping around the back of them, you know, and they couldn't, you know, their mental picture of what was going on. I don't like, because of these, you know, modifications to the basement wasn't adding up to what they thought they were going to have when they get down there. So the companies, we get going up the stairs and I talked to a few guys afterwards and, They, you know, like anybody who's operated in a basement player knows, like, there's this, like, all right, take a deep breath, get down the stairs, it's going to get better. But, like, that point of going down the stairs, like, that's a miserable part, right? And, but you also know that when you come up the stairs, like, in your head, you think, man, there's going to be relief up there. Like, I get to the top of the stairs, and it's going to be relief. But, like, I didn't have the time to tell them, and they couldn't wrap their head around it. Like, you know, it was going south on that floor. Like, fire was in the walls. Fire's coming through the vents high, high, high heat level up there. So they start their way up the stairs. You know, there's already a bunch of confusion going on and uh, I'm coming up last up the stairs. Now the fire's going unchecked in the basement. And I'm thinking, all right, we're just going to go up. It's like 20 feet to the door. They get up into the basement. Henson camp does a great job leading some guys out, but other guys become disorientated. A guy craw- crawls into the pantry. Um, and unfortunately what happens is like, basically there's a log jam. Like gets created they're trying to follow the hose line, which is just a bunch of loops upon loops, and uh, I get stuck right at the top of the stairs, like you know three stairs from the top, and you know now fire's going unchecked in the basement, it's absolutely miserable, and i I end up laying on my hands because I was getting burned, and I end up calling for a mayday and a guy named uh, he's now a chief, a guy named Andy Hargarten, he was one of the guys that made it out to the door and he realized in quick fashion that the guys weren't following him. And he just went back to like the most basic of all skills that we teach firefighters. And that was, he went back to that door and he just started pounding on the floor. Like, here's your exit. Here's your exit. And that broke the, you know, that broke the log jam. And, uh, I ended up being able to scoot out and, you know, all members made it out a little banged up, but, uh, you know, everybody came back to work.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty intense experience. You gave a mayday over your, over your tactical radio. Yeah. Which so at the time we didn't have a
1: dedicated now we have a dedicated button that gives us priority, but at that time you just, you know, it was the luck of the draw whether you were going to get on the air. And I got on the air. One of the chiefs heard it, one of the chiefs did not. But the the you know, I called a log jam, that log jam broke so fast that I don't think by the time they heard my day day it was going to you know, it was going to matter. You know, we were out of the building probably by the time they were going to put something in play. Okay.
0: So I got to ask, what did you learn about yourself and more broadly? You mentioned uh, human factors, but what did you learn about yourself and more more broadly human performance from this harrowing event?
1: Well, the one thing I always think about, you know, at this point I have, it's 2010. I have uh, 11 years on the job. Like I'm probably a danger to myself from this fact that I probably think I know more than I do. And I was like a lot of firefighters before this, like I'd look at buildings and I'd go, Oh, that building's a fireman killer. That building's a fireman killer. And it'd be like these big odd buildings that we'd like go check out. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm laying on the stairs and I'm thinking I'm going to die in this like 20 by 50, you know, 20 feet from the door building and so one thing that i changed which I, I like i preach to you guys now is like any building can take a fireman like just they're all dangerous so th- th- that would said, like from the human perspective i i just i look at that fire and i look at a you know another fire and i and i just you know tactics are great and i and i push tactics and you know i think there's just so much value in tactics so many side products of it but what saved us was the Like, I think our, like Hargarden's ability and Henzey's ability not to tactically perform because they didn't do any of the tactically move, but was to, like, keep themselves in a space mentally where they could think their way through what was going on, come up with a solution and implement that solution. Like, you know, we didn't force a door. We didn't take a window. We didn't bail out. We didn't, like, we didn't do any of these tactical things that we trained for, like, an immense amount of time. But, you know, it was really how those guys were able to, like, keep their cool, calm and composure in an event that was, like, totally going sideways um, that I think made the difference.
0: So you'd say those guys were still somewhat centered on the curve at a time when many other guys were on the on the backside?
1: A hundred percent. You know, and, you know, I talked to a lot of the members afterwards. And, you know, at the time, I, you know, I had no idea what LUF was. And... uh know i talked a lot of those members afterwards and you know they admitted like you know we weren't hearing anything and in their words like we were just freaking out everything we tried to do was wasn't happening you know it's a trait that sometimes helps firemen i think is this like ability to like plow forward like something gets tough we just like work harder at it sure but in some cases we got to take that step back and like you know why isn't this working and i I think Hinsey and uh andy hargarden like exemplified that like ability to like keep their calm and cool and composure and like, you know, put something in play that like, I I think, you know, I I don't want to be dramatic. Like, I mean, I, I know definitely saved me. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just look at the sheer number of fires you've operated at, uh, and the fact that you've, you've only transmitted a mayday twice, haven't been to thousands of fires. I I think that that in itself, you know, substantiates the fact that you are uh, legitimately in a in a bad way there for a, a, a brief period of time the other thing about that fire that this is like 2010 right mm-hmm. so so predate the inception of the rescue company
1: correct so that, yeah, we're still you we know, talk,
0: talk about the value of the company i think that that's the type of fire that probably validates the added yeah, value of having a rescue company right
1: agreed yeah i think that uh yeah, I definitely would have liked to have some rescue guys stand outside the building if things got any worse for me. But. Sure.
0: So four years later, December of 2014, at this point in your career, you're you're a captain, you're the company commander of Rescue Company 2. You were operating at a fire in a two-story multiple dwelling with several apartments per floor on West Eggert. You were in the process of conducting a search Above the fire floor with two other members of your company when when things went sideways. What transpired at that fire that led members to being in, the, in distress? And at what point did you transmit a, a, a Mayday? Yeah, so, you know, at this
1: point I'm on Rescue 2. Um, we're riding five members. We get sent to a report of a structure fire in a uh, uh, two-story apartment building. It ends up being eight units. On the way there, several additional calls of uh, people trapped on the second floor. First two companies radio that they have fire showing uh, from the public entryway in the front of the building. We arrive on scene to find the same heavy fire load out that uh, those front doors. A good friend of mine's working on truck 15. And he, you know, he calls me on the radio. And he says, "Hey Brian, he goes, we got report additional reports of people trapped on the second floor. You're going to have to go through the back door uh, to get to them." So. At this point, I get off the rig, I can see the line being stretched in the front. So I'm thinking, all right, they're going to have water on this in the front pretty quick. No fire showing from any other point in the building. I split the company. I take uh, a guy named uh, Danny Holdman and uh, Ben Baus and uh, a guy named Perillo and Jimmy Miller. are. They're going to throw ladders in the back and uh, do vent intersearch into the apartments on the second floor. Um, I, the three of us get to the back. I can look down the public hallway. The fire's like... I'd say like in the front third of this public hallway, but I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, all right, there's a line being laid. You know, this will, you know, this is going to go all right. Like, you know, we're in a pretty good position. Stairs are like two feet in the doorway to my right. Um, we shoot up the stairs and that's kind of like where it started to like, things started not like to add up in my head. Like, all right, fires in the front, but we're up on these like stairs. And like the heat level was like way higher than I expected. Like, we're, okay, we'll still do a search, but like, you know, my mental map is like starting to fall apart a little bit. Like the first, like, kind of like hit it takes. So I tell Danny, I said, Danny, like we're now we're facing uh, the public hallway. I tell Danny to go to my right, which puts him searching up towards uh, the front of the building. And I tell Ben to go left almost simultaneously. I hear uh, Craig Pearl yell from outside. Hey, you're losing the stairs. And there was no doorway on the stairwell. And I turn around and uh, fire is just like tremendous amount of heat comes rocking it up the stairs and over us. And I'm like, <laughs> like man, this sucks. And uh, I yell for Danny. I yell for Ben and they both come back and I tell Ben, I said, Ben, I know there's a window at the end of this hallway. I want you to take that window. We're going to go out the window. And like, it is amazing to me. He just His, his response to me was 10-4 cap. And I call for Danny. It takes a little bit. Danny had opened the doorwell, or doorway to the stairs uh, in the front. He saw the fire kind of unchecked in the front. Knew that that was going to be a bad thing. He reached in, actually got pretty badly burned on his hand, grabbed the door and closed it um, to kind of protect our six. He comes back. You know, I go, Danny, we're going to jump out the window at the end of the hallway. He was like, all right, 10-4. Like, that was like the only communication we had. So Ben makes his way, and I, I got to know, like, Ben had about – Ben was, like, super young on the job, about two years on the job at this point. Hadn't been hadn't been to a fair amount of fire duty, but not a lot. This is definitely one of the t- most intense fires he had been at. He gets to that window, he realizes we're not there, and he holds it. Because, like, somewhere in the back triggers, like, if I take this window, like, that is going to go to worse. And yeah. uh, so, like, commitment to, you know, something bigger than himself. Waits for Danny and I to stack up on him. It tries to take the bottom window, kicks the glass. It's only a 28-inch wide window with a uh, a PVC um, sash. Tries to break that, can't break it. Ends up jumping out that window. Danny goes and then I go. Um, you know, everybody's pretty banged up, but, um, you know, comes back to the job. I mean, from the time we were on scene to the time we were coming out the windows was less than two minutes. So...
0: And, and the um, window was it the end of a public hallway? Correct. And the window was on the second floor.
1: Window was on the second floor. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So like from the outside perspective, Timmy Miller, I talked to Timmy Miller later. He said, I could hear the window breaking. He goes, I thought, you know, I, I wasn't sure what was going on. He goes, you know, the fire vented out the window and he goes, all of a sudden Ben's coming out this, you know, this window that's fully involved in fire. And he's like, I'm trying to get the ladder over. And he's like, I just couldn't react fast enough. And by the time, you know, all of a sudden Danny and then you are tumbling out the window. So I called for a mayday right when we got stacked up in the hallway. So Ben's at the window, trying to take the window, Danny's behind me. And I, you know, I, I really just, I got out rescued to, you know, the mayday, mayday, mayday. And that was about it. And then, you know, boom, we were out the window. So I mean, that fire, like, the Mineral Fire and the Eggert Fire, like, I mean, I've had other emergencies where, I mean, they were definitely game changers, especially, like, after my exposure to LUS. Like, as far as, like, our ability to remain cool and calm and focused under extreme stress, like, how that can significantly affect uh, the outcome. I mean, I tell people, and I think they're lying to me, or I think they think I'm lying to them when I'm, like, How Danny and Ben, I wish I had a recording on my, you know, helmet of them saying, okay, you know, it was like, Hey, Jason, we're going to go down into the bar, you know, catch a beer. Yeah. Okay. Brian, it was like that call. It was unbelievable.
0: Probably one of the questions that I get most frequently when speaking to groups about human performance and human factors is, uh, and it's somewhat of a timeless question, are these traits and attributes that we can train and develop or are they innate you know are are we born are they are they biological in in nature so what kind of where do you stand yeah i i
1: think part of it has to be that that's something their parents gave them you know it's part of their character part of their being i mean i i think i don't think we can overlook that part i think it would almost be like i feel it would be like shortchanging everything that their parents for them or any part of their upbringing ever did for them. If we like assumed responsibility for that part. But I definitely think that for me, like if we can better understand how negatively stress impacts us, then we can identify that and we can name that and then we can develop trainings so at least identify like, hey, this is going to happen to you, and we'll give you some tools on how to deal with that when that happens to you. You know, it's not all of one thing and all of the other; it's it's a, it's a combination. And I think it's definitely something that we can train to, train with our people on to improve it.
0: Yeah, I would largely agree, and then I would also add that oftentimes, and I know we've talked about this previously, but stress has such a negative connotation, particularly in the fire service, right? And there's a whole there's a tremendous amount of upside to, to stress, right? Like that pressure, that that stress, whether it be the competitiveness of the of the endeavor or venture, or just the recognition that like right now, like somebody is in is in peril and this this is a moment in time of of consequence and and kind of being able to to channel that it's it's just uh, certainly fascinating. Anything in particular that you learned about your, yourself, at, at this particular fire as a as a leader as a commander of a of a unit who was responsible for taking guys to fires but then also responsible for you know re- recruiting guys and, and training guys a, any important takeaways
1: yeah i think that uh you know for me personally i mean i spent a ton of time thinking about these two fires and you know especially with the eggert yeah you know, i spent a lot of time like what did i read wrong um like trying to put the pieces back together. Like, you know, I talked about like my mental map, not adding up and you know, I'm like, nothing was falling into like, you know, obviously I'm using my experience to make decisions as I'm like coming on the scene and the information I'm getting fed as I'm coming in. And I'm like, man, I feel like I like for a long time, I like, man, I played this right. I like this shouldn't have happened to us, you know? And then you find out, you know, one of the things was, is you know, the guy that lit this fire, you know, did us a favor and poured five gallons of gasoline down that hallway before it lit up. So, you know, fire conditions didn't meet what I was thinking in my head. It reinforced to me, and, you know, I say this with, with humility intact, of my ability, you know, to, to have this stress or stimuli put on me and then kind of clearly think my way through a problem set and remain calm And as much credit as I give to Danny and Ben, I also think part of it was, you know, without me getting keyed up, that kept them calm. And I think company officers have to take that, really have to look at themselves and understand that, you know, not only does your own uh, performance negatively get impacted um, when you lose your cool, calm and composure, but because of your leadership role, how quickly that domino effect happens that it negatively affects the members you that work around you, you know, and then I look at, you know, for me, I I think it validated, you know, the training that we had done before that, because, you know, even though we didn't like, you know, much like the mineral fire, you know, there was no big tactical move that occurred, right. Ben took out the window and we jumped out the window. It wasn't graceful. There was no big tactical move, but we had spent a ton of time, you know, in company drills. And I think company drills, the value that it brought for us is company drills, not only teach you a tactical skill, but they force you to talk and communicate and they force you to build trust in each other and, you know, and do some stress, stress in themselves. So they, you know, like you've learned how to navigate stress a little bit. So I, I think that validated the amount of training that we put in. And then I think it, you know, it validated our recruitment process because Danny and Ben just, you know, did an absolutely phenomenal job and probably wouldn't want to have been stuck with two other guys in that hallway that day.
0: Just as an observer who's listening to you reflect on both these fires, a, a couple of things really resonated with me. Uh, you mentioned your your mental model, or your map, and in both cases, the model, the mental model that you had and were relying on, just didn't align with reality. Right, the, the first being a basement fire where guys anticipate they're going to come up the stairs, they're going to experience or encounter some relief in conditions on the first floor or above the basement, or every bit is as they are below, and in this particular fire, where you, you just can't make make sense of the fact that you have the fire that you do on on the floor above and the amount of heat, and that misalignment between your mental model uh and reality wasn't the product of inexperience or not being focused or you know any of those things. It just it just didn't didn't match up. Tough to reconcile. The other interesting thing or theme that I I think you, you highlight, uh, and I know within kind of the LUF network, it's something that we, we advocate for, but in, in Captain William Flaherty and Rescue 2 and and FDY, you know, one of his favorite mantras is calm is contagious. Uh, and what's interesting about that particular flyer is the most junior member who you're working with far less experienced than you, uh, is, main, is able to maintain his his composure, is able to remain collected, maintain that presence of of mind, and it then positively impacts you as a as a leader. You know, so in a very very informal way, in that moment, Ben, who I've gotten to know, you know, through some of our our interaction, he's as solid as they come. But in in that moment, he's in very informal fashion, he's actually leading leading up. You know, and, and favorably influencing yeah. you, like the, the formal leader, right? It's it's uh it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: Hundred percent. So Brian, I should probably mention that that truly after that particular fire, uh, in October 2015, you were a featured member of a LUF Risk and Resilience Panel at a LUF Human Performance Summit that included New York Times, National Geographic combat photojournalist Lindsay Adario and the late and legendary John Vigiano, retired captain from the New York City Fire Department. When I think back to the many events that LUF has hosted over the past decade, this panel discussion sticks out as one of my personal favorites. Uh, What did you take away from the experience, having the opportunity to reflect on your firsthand experience with the unforgiving nature of the fire floor and floor above while sitting, next to Lindsay and the Vig? <laughs> oh, man.
1: Um, well, one, I think it, it was, it's like one of the great, I mean, it's an opportunity that I'm like forever thankful for to meet those two individuals, just unbelievably phenomenal. Like, and I'll probably forever, like kind of in a way, you know, like hold it against you, like jokingly, <laughs> but, uh, um, <laughs> but like, you know, not only was I on the panel, but I was physically between the two. Right. So on you know, my right hand is Lindsay, and then on my left is the captain. And um, you know, for me to be able to kind of tell that story, and I, it really was the story of the Eggard fire with the calibre of people that were sitting next to me. I don't know, it it just uh you know, so you have Lindsay to my right who and yeah, I'm gonna like shortchange her story here, but like right, kidnapped. One or two times, like worked in the most dangerous places, like just unbelievable story of you know resiliency. And then Captain Vidge, like you know, like story member of the FDNY, right? Like you talk about thousands of fires. Like you know, I love when Danny Murphy's like you know, like the guys in the Warriors. Like he just says it so nonchalantly, like oh, you know, they go to ten fires a day. <laughs> like what? what did he just say? But you know, I'm sitting next to this guy, and then you know, he loses his sons and, you know, battles cancer. And I mean, his whole life story is just from professional to personal is just unbelievable, unbelievable, phenomenal. And I think the greatest value I got from it was one, I was like, one, I had a great seat to listen to these two people talk, which was unbelievable. But it was really in the, the interactions I had with both of them prior to like us actually talking to the to the group. And, you know, like I'm, yeah, you know, I'll admit it. I I was struggling with like, you know, this was pretty fresh on the heels of the Egger fire, And, sure. uh, you know, I, I was getting a little professionally beat up at work, you know, personally, you know, the company struggled a little bit from it. And, uh, you know, the, both, both of these individuals, especially Kevin Vigil, like he was so interested and so immersed in why I was there on that panel and like where I worked and, you know, what happened at this fire. And like, he gave like such sound advice to me. It was just unbelievable uh, um, opportunity, you know, and then just to listen to him as you know, they answered questions and for Lindsay to answer questions. I, me- I remember one, uh, at towards the end of it, somebody in the group, there was like a chance to ask questions. Somebody in the group asked a question. He's like, Oh, you know, this is to you know, Cap McNulty and Kevin Vigiano. And I, I remember the guy asked a question and I just looked and like you just have to know sometimes when you're outpaced and I just like I I just kind of sat back and I was like you know you know Cap okay, why why don't you take this one like right like yeah, I don't always make the best decisions but that was a good one
0: I made but I don't know if that answers your question Jason but it it was just yeah uh, I, you know, I guess just it's fun it's to re- look back and reflect on it and uh, at the time I you know I, I certainly knew you we had a report. I didn't know you nearly as well as I as I do now. But it wasn't lost on me that you know you're you're trying to make sense of this this particular fire and you're subject to some scrutiny. There, you know, you're probably beating yourself up. Some others, you know, had had their thoughts, and and you're trying to to learn from it in such a fashion that you could come out better for that experience, uh, as unpleasant as it was, right? And and your company could come away from that experience better for it, as unpleasant as it was. You're certainly the uh the, the junior member of that of that panel and you're you're not a uh somewhat of an international celebrity like like <laughs> Lindsay is and that's Lindsay is, but not certainly by by choice. And you know, you didn't have the decades of experience that the Vich had, but I, I thought that my sense was that everyone in, that attended that summit would benefit from your perspective. And I also believe that it would be helpful for you. To, to kind of navigate that experience as uncomfortable as it as it probably was. And I think one of the, the core values or kind of core principles that LUSF that we, we, we try to adhere to and advocate for is that there's like four explicit phases of performance. There's the preparation phase. There's the execution phase. Then there's the reflection phase. And then subsequent to that, there's like the learning phase. And I think like historically, like fire service, military, we, we give a lot of, a lot of attention, obviously to the execution phase, cause that's largely where we want to spend most of our time. And then we give a lot of attention to the preparation phase. Sometimes like that reflection phase is, is somewhat like of an afterthought, right? We're really selective about when we spend time there. Quite honestly, like the, the challenge that many of us have is we're so busy li- living our lives and fulfilling our responsibilities at work and at home, that sometimes we can have a really powerful experience at at work or away from work. But often we we kind of uh, rob ourselves of the opportunity and time to kind of sit down and reflect on it and unpack it. And sometimes these, like that process takes time, you know, like what you're able to make sense of in the weeks following that flyer is probably drastically different than it was once later than it probably even is today. You know, when you look back, through the rear view mirror. So I, I'm not surprised that, that there was a part of you that wanted to say no and didn't want to be up there, but now you look <laughs> back and you're, you're certainly glad, glad that you, you did it. Yeah, you know, I, I know that, that we are.